The following audio is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. The following audio is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. Here we are. Last week we learned that Jonah got swallowed by this big fish, and now we see him in the belly of this fish. And so we're going to pick up in Jonah chapter 1, verse 17, and begin there. So as you find your, your, your place, I'm going to begin reading in, in verse 17, chapter 1. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven from your sight, yet I I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters close in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit. O Lord, my God, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Crazy, crazy story. You know, if you do a little bit of searching around online, you will find stories like this, real-life stories that of, of, of men who have been swallowed in such a way. In the late 1800s, you'll find this man, this Englishman, who they were whalers, and they were in their ship, and they were reeling in this enormous whale. And they struggled with this whale for several hours. And one of the sailors was accidentally thrown overboard. And in the struggle and in the chaos of the waters and the whales uh, flailing about, they lost the sailor. And he never came back up, imagining that he would be dead. Eventually, when the whale lay lifeless and floating there by the side of the boat, they were able to reel it in, and they began cutting away at the flesh to preserve the meat and to store the meat. And it took them a couple days to cut away at the flesh. And when they got down to the ribcage, they saw, surprisingly, some movement underneath the skin. And so they began to cut away feverishly at the bones and break apart And they opened up the stomach of this whale. And inside, alive, was their sailor. You'll see these stories if you look around. And things that I think about as I hear these stories and I I read this, this, this book and this account of Jonah being swallowed like this is, what would his skin look like? I mean, would it be crispy? Would it be... Would it be like wrinkled like you've been in the bath for too long? Would it be soggy? How do you breathe in the stomach of a whale? What does it smell like in there? Can you see anything? I mean, how do you even survive? How do you live inside the stomach of a whale? I I picture that scene from Pinocchio. 
Do you remember that where Geppetto and, and their cat and Pinocchio, they get swallowed by this whale and they're in there and they're floating around and there's a, you know, a piano floating and driftwood and Geppetto's just like writing a novel or something. And then they, what do they do? They build a fire and it causes smoke to fill up inside of the stomach of the whale and he sneezes them out eventually. Was it like that? What was it like inside of this whale? You know, I mentioned in week one of our series as we were preparing to enter into this that this is an autobiography, that this story is being written in the third person by Jonah of the account of him being swallowed by this, this big fish. And if we remember that that is true, that he's actually writing this, it'll give us a unique perspective. So knowing that, remembering that Jonah is writing of this account, if I were writing this, I think I would spend a little bit more time actually describing what it was like to be in the belly of a whale. Wouldn't you? So that my friends could know of this epic journey, so that I could brag about it, so that I could give a detailed account. This is exactly what happened as I saw the whale coming in and his mouth open, and I was like, oh no, and he swallowed me, and this is what it was like inside. I mean, I would go into just the detail of what was going on, but we don't see that. When I get to heaven, I'd like to sit down at Jonah's feet and just say, what was going on? What was that like? Wouldn't that be amazing? But this speculation, although interesting, of thinking about the whale and, and what was it like and what circumstances did he experience in there, it, it's interesting, but it causes us to focus on the wrong thing. It causes us to focus on the wrong character in this, in this part of the story. And this isn't the story of Jonah and a big fish. This is the story of Jonah and a big God. And this fish just happened to be the thing that God wanted to use to get Jonah's attention. It's not about how to physically survive in the belly of a a fish. This story is about how to spiritually become revived. How did Jonah come to find himself as this man who is rebelling from God? And if you're aware of the story, you remember this. He is called out by God to go to this great city to, to... preach to them, to teach them of repentance, to call them to God. And he says, no, and he flees, and he runs from them, and he's apprehended by God in the midst of this storm. He is thrown overboard by sailors. He is swallowed by this fish. How, do, how does a man like that, running from God, come to a place where he is able to, at the end of this prayer, shout victory? Look at how he's describing his situation. He, he's a changed man. He is becoming, before our, our eyes, a, a changed man. These are the vivid words as we read through this prayer of what he's experiencing. He says, The flood surrounded me. The waves and your billows passed over me. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. Jonah, in, in graphic detail, is explaining to us what, it, what it's like to drown what it feels like to, to know that you're about to drown. Scary. But then the story changes. In the midst of his prayer, as he goes down and down down and deeper and deeper and deeper, he says, yet you brought up my life from the pit. We see this change. Jonah, who was sinking, now begins to rise. How does a rebellious person like that become a changed man? The answer to that is in this prayer. The answer he, he tells us is in this prayer. And consider how natural the introduction seems to be in verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish 
three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish. And here's the first thing he does. Jonah calls to God. Jonah calls out to God in the belly of the fish. He says, I called to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. I called out in my pain, and he answered me. He listened to me. He heard my cry. I remember that, that epic event in 2010 in, in, in Chile. The, you remember the 33 miners who were caught half a mile underneath the ground when their mine collapsed? You know they were in there for two months, half a mile under the ground for two months. And do you know that for 17 days, it wasn't until 17 days that they even knew that they were going to even have a chance of rescue? It took 17 days until they even knew that someone up there knew that they were down there trapped? For 17 days over two weeks, they're thinking, we may never get out of this. And as I was watching this story unfold in 2010, it was in October of 2010 where I'm, I'm watching the news and I'm seeing these accounts and I'm, 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 my anxiety is building up. As many of yours might have been too. The claustrophobia, the, the fear, the what, thinking, what would it be like to be in that circumstance? How horrible would it be to be in that circumstance? And yet how, how celebratory was it when we watch in October those, those men come out one by one in this little capsule that they're tight and they're traveling up on this rope uh, half a mile to the surface. And when they come out of this capsule, some of them are even dancing. Some of them are, are smiling and celebrating and going to loved ones and embracing and laughing and so joyful that they are out. And yet we know that in their victory and in their celebration, that experience was not all like that. There were times when they thought they would never make it. Jonah's prayer of, of rescue teaches us how God desires us to pray. And I imagine those men that were in that cave, just underneath there, hoping for salvation, but not seeing much light at all. And the calling out in their hearts for rescue. Jonah teaches us how to pray in this passage. And the Christian life is a continual habit of, of looking in and looking out and looking in and looking out. This pattern, this rhythm of looking in and crying out to God. He says, I called to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly I cried, and he heard my voice. You know, the rhythm of our life before God is like this ebb and flow of the waves that Jonah finds himself drowning in. Jonah sees his agony, but then he sees God's response. He sees his agony, and then he sees God's response. This perpetual ebb and flow of conflict and resolution. Jesus even tells his friends, he says, In this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. In James chapter 5, verse 13, it says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. You know, if we feel bad about our pain, our hurt, our weakness, our sin, our agony, if we look in and we feel horrible about those things and we don't go to God for rescue, then we agonize in, in vain. If we acknowledge the blessing and the, the victories and the talents and the giftedness that we have and the celebration in our life and the much cause for joy and yet we don't go to God in praise, then we celebrate in vain. And God is teaching us here through Jonah that the Christian life is one of, of looking in and recognizing where we are, whether joy 
or pain and then going to God in either circumstance. Jonah is saying, even here, even in the belly of this fish, even in the depth of my agony, far from your sight, you can still be found. Even here, I call out to you and you know where I am. And you hear me. You know, some of you are in this, it's this place of distress right now. Some of you, are, your hearts are agonizing, you're hurting, your, your, your emotions are kind of closing in on you. You're a Christian and you're wrestling with something that God has put in your life. And you've been there for a long time, maybe. You feel like you're drowning. And it's possible to go a long time when you're suffering and wrestling in agony and then realize at the end of this time that you haven't been talking to God at all. You haven't been yelling out to him in your distress. You haven't been crying out to him in your agony. You may be worrying in God's direction, but that's not the same thing. Worrying to God generally is not the same thing as crying out to him for help. A person who believes in in God and worries is not the same thing as a person who cries out to God for help. You yell out to God. Jonah looks in, but he doesn't stay there. He looks in, he sees his circumstance, and it wasn't hard for him to see the, the agony that he was in. And he cries out, he yells out for help, and God hears him. Have you ever cried out to God? Have you ever yelled out to him? either in praise or in, in, in rescue, in need of rescue? Have you ever done that? And this isn't only a question for non-Christians. And I'm not asking you, if you're not a Christian, then that's what you need to do. This is for all of us, Christian or non-Christian. This is a question for all of us. That as we grow in our pursuit of God and knowing Him more, that the Bible affirms that we ought to increase and grow in, in two very important habits. One of looking in and seeing our our need, and seeing our need for rescue, and then calling out to God, and seeing His ability, and His joy, and His salvation to rescue us. Jonah gains this understanding. He sees his circumstance, and he cries out to God. And then Jonah remembers God. He cries out, he yells out, and then he remembers. Look at verse 4 and 7. He says, I'm driven from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. I went away I went way down, but you brought me up. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Look at what Jonah does as he remembers the Lord. He looks to the temple. Why the temple? What, is, what does that mean? Is that an obsolete idea? Should we even not consider that since we don't go to a temple? You see, the temple in the Old Testament was the place where God communicated with his people. And in the temple, God communicates to us. He's telling us something very specific. And he's telling Jonah something very specific. The temple is a picture. And through that picture, God is telling us, this is how I'm going to ultimately save you. God is saying, I am the one who saves. The temple shows us the gospel. The temple shows us the good news. That the sacrifices are made, that people would come to the temple seeking God's salvation, and they would offer a sacrifice to him, and that through the sacrifice of this blameless animal, this innocent animal, the blood would cover over the sins of the people, and God would have favor on them, and he would save them, he would forgive them. And so as people look at the temple, they see this is where God 
gives a response to my need. This is where God tells me that he saves me. What Jonah was looking at when he was looking at the temple, he was actually looking at Jesus. Matthew 12, verse 40 says this. This is what Jesus says. He says, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus is stealing Jonah's identity. Jesus is an identity thief for Jonah. He does this all throughout Scripture. Have you noticed that? If, you, if you've learned through Scripture and read through Scripture, you know that Jesus takes people's identity all the time. He says, I'm the new Adam. He says, I'm the new Joseph. I'm the new Abraham. I'm the new Jonah. You know what identity theft does? Maybe, maybe this has happened to you. It's happened to me a few times, not, not drastically, but where people will take my likeness, they'll take my credit card, and they'll go and, and buy a bunch of things. And so what an identity theft does is they, they bring debt, they bring foreclosure, they bring pain, they bring agony, they bring suffering, they bring inconvenience, and they reap the benefit, they reap the reward. They're having the time of their life, they're living the life that they want to live through you, and you get all the pain. Identity theft is horrible. But, but what if it was good? What if it was something different? What if instead of an identity theft going into your account, taking all that you have, living a life of luxury, and you receiving pain, what if it was the opposite way? What if in stealing your identity, that thief goes into your account and puts a bunch of money in there? What if that identity thief purchases a house in, in, in Italy in your name? What if that identity thief through taking your identity, receives all your pain and all your agony and all your suffering, and you receive all the joy. Therefore, you are living the life you've always desired to live, but you couldn't live because you didn't have the means to do it. What if that was what an identity theft did? There would be no LifeLock. There would be no need for passwords on your computer. We would be freely giving our identity to these people. Please take it. Take what I have. Enjoy this misery, and I'll take your joy. I'll take, I'll take your wealth. That's what Jesus is doing with Jonah. By taking Jonah's identity, Jesus is saying, this is how I am going to save you. I will go to this horrible place for you. I will take your debt. I will take your pain, and you will take my wealth. You will take my life. And Jonah, in the belly of the whale, by faith, he sees this. He sees this picture of salvation. And he knows that he has been so rebellious. He knows that he is, he is weak. He knows that he is in debt. He knows that he has wronged God. He knows it so well. And he sees that Jesus, he sees that the God of salvation is taking on his pain, and pursuing him so that he might have life. Jonah's experience, and we should get this, is nothing less than the worst that we could possibly imagine. I think we can agree on that. There is no worse way to spend three days than what Jonah is doing here. How was your weekend? Oh, it was really bad, but, but it wasn't Jonah bad. <laughs> I, I really think that this could be like a new catchphrase to describe this really horrible situation. Hey, I want you to know I'll be praying for you. Here you're going through it, Jonah. 
what's going on, man? You feeling a little Jonah today? To describe just this agony that we're feeling. This is Jonah. He's going through the absolute worst that we can imagine. God has closed in so tightly on him. Every human distraction is gone. Every human distraction has been removed. You see, when we're going through pain, when we are going through suffering, when we are neglecting to acknowledge the ways that we have rebelled against God, we are still offered many human distractions, aren't we? We can work harder. We can get away from home and we can just disappear for a little while. We can go on vacation. We can get a hobby. We can do other things. Jonah doesn't have that luxury. Doesn't have that luxury. Everything is taken away to make him focus exactly on his need for God and exactly on God's ability and desire to save him. Instead of letting his heart and his emotions get the best of him, he is telling his heart what to believe. Instead of Jonah saying, I am miserable, my life is over, that is it, which he has every right to feel at this point, Instead of his heart telling him what is true, he is telling his heart what is true. Jonah is talking to himself. Do you see what he's doing here? This little kind of schizophrenic. He's talking to himself. He's saying, I'm hurting, but so what? Look at the temple. Look at what God is doing. Look at who he is. I've heard it said that doubting is listening to your, God, listening to your heart, but faith is talking to your heart. I am hurting. What does this mean? Maybe God doesn't care. That's what my heart feels. God has betrayed me. God's neglected me. God has left me to myself. God doesn't want me to be happy. God doesn't want me to have victory because that's how I feel. Instead of letting our heart tell us what, tr- what is true, we tell our heart what is true. What are you going to do when your heart is speaking to you in your pain, in your suffering, in your agony? You have two choices. You either listen to your heart Or you tell your heart what is true. You let your heart listen to you. That's what Jonah is doing. Jonah, some believe that faith is the absence of thinking. Like, just have faith. Just clear your mind and let God just take over. Just don't think about it too much. Don't pursue options. Don't don't learn. Just let your heart bleed out into, into what you should do. But faith is not just letting your mind relax and believe. Faith is, faith is an active thinking. Faith is, is talking to yourself about the things that are true that God has revealed to you. And saying, in the, midst of my, in the midst that everything that is going on in my life is telling me the opposite, I am going to tell my circumstances what God has revealed to me as truth. Because this is unchanging. This is real. God never changes. He never lies. I feel banished. Imagine what Jonah is feeling. I feel banished. I feel like my life is cut off. I feel that God does not care about me. Does Jonah have reason to believe that? In his circumstances, absolutely. And he recognizes that all this is from the hand of God. He says, your waves have have swallowed me. You threw me over the boat. You sent a fish to swallow me. You brought on the storm. And he's recognizing rightly that all of this, God is in control. And all of this is from the hand of God. But he shakes off those lies and he says, I know something true. I know something about God. He has a temple and that means he's present with me. He controls the waves and the winds, even in this great fish. He's heard me when I cry out to him. I have run from God and he is still pursuing me. Wow, how God must love me. That's what he's saying to himself. 
if I could be this man that runs from God and he is still pursuing me, then he must love me so much. The worst thing to live without is this steadfast love of God. And Jonah knows it. And he comes to realize that. He says, I feel bad for people that don't hope in the steadfast love of God. I feel bad for the people that run to something else other than God because if they don't have this steadfast love of God, they have nothing. It's the worst thing. And this truth is plowing deeply into Jonah's heart. It is pushing, boring so quickly into his heart, so deep, he realizes he has become so insensitive to God's presence. He took it for granted. Yeah, God's with us. Of course he is all the time, right? God's, God's good and things are going to work out. He becomes so insensitive to the truth and the power of God. But now it's front and center. He sees that the love of God is covering over a multitude of his sins. And it's lifting him to new life. It's taking him from the depth of the ocean. And it's causing him to rise up. Jonah has become buoyant. Jonah is beginning to float because of a faith in who God is. There are many things that we ought to learn from God and about God. And this will take time. And God will take time with us as he pursues us through his grace to reveal these things to us through his word, through our circumstances. God will take time, but he wants to put us in a position where we need to unlearn all the things that we've learned that are wrong about God and start to learn new all the things that are true about God. And Jonah, seeing all this, seeing all these things that become true, even in the midst of his agony, he is left to do one last thing. He worships. He worships. He says, with a voice of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Look at this man who runs from God, and now we see the same man is saying, Salvation belongs to the Lord. I commit to the Lord. I praise him with thanksgiving. And what I have said, I will do. My life is yours. A man who runs from God is now changed into a man who says, Everything I have is yours. When we see God as he is, we can't help but worship him. When we see God as he truly is, we cannot help but say, All that I am is yours. Jonah has gone, gone from calling out to God, gone from calling out to God to remembering and thinking about God or who he is, and now he's worshiping God. He says, salvation belongs to the Lord. But guess what? Here's an interesting point. Jonah's still in the fish. How could Jonah say that he will commit all to the Lord? How can he say that he will make good on his, on his faith and his, his, his sacrifice and his promise and commitment to God when he's not out of the fish yet? He is saying, I see that you love me, and if you love me as you say that you have, all that I am is yours. See, this, this is real faith. This is real faith that in the midst of our circumstances, we are able to see, God, I am not out of this yet, but I know who you are. And therefore, you being good and being loving and being mighty and powerful, I can say all that I am is yours and I will follow you, even if I'm not out of that just yet. I will live my life not based on experiences, not based on appearances, not based on my circumstances, but on the truth of who you are. As you are, there my life goes. Not as my circumstances go, there my life is. 
It is here that we see that worship is not only a, a song from our mouth, which it definitely is. It's not only a meditation on his word, which it definitely is. But it is a song from the heart. It is a life of faith that flows out of a heart that trusts from God. We don't say things like this, God, if you would spit me out on the dry land, I will follow you forever. But Jonah, being in the stomach of the fish still, he says, you are my God. You love me. All I am is yours. He says, salvation belongs to the Lord. When I'm still in the belly, I will see you in your glory. I will remember you. I will see you in your temple. I will see you in honor. I will see you as not a weak God, but a powerful God. And I will tell my heart how to feel in this circumstance. I won't let my heart tell me what is true. And I will praise you for who you are. Salvation is not a talent. Do you know what I mean by that? Salvation is not something like, like a musical talent where we see somebody in their talent and say, wow, he's really good. I want to be like that. Or we see an athlete and say, what talent that athlete has. I want to be like that. Salvation is not a talent. It's something that we are good at or not good at. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Do you know what saves us? Do you know what really saves us and takes us out of the pit? Do you know what makes us, enables us to be buoyant people where we are rising in God, to God in praise and faith? What causes us to take us out of that pit is nothing less than identity theft. Nothing less than Jesus taking our debt and giving us his life. And this is what he is like. As we learn about this identity, what identity then is Christ giving us as we pursue him by faith, as we trust in him, as we learn of him and we say, this is who God is, I will believe in him. You know, Jesus to us, he is not just this sympathetic friend. And, I, and, and we want that a lot of times. We want in our, in, our, in our trouble for God to come up to us to put a hand on our shoulder and say, there, there, everything's going to be okay. He, because a sympathetic friend is merely just that, is, is this person that could comfort us but doesn't have any, any power to change us. A sympathetic friend is there to comfort us, but we know that that friend can't do anything about it. This is the, this is the burden that we bear. And he's not merely that. You know, and Jesus isn't just this powerful warrior as we can sometimes see him as. That he's this powerful warrior like God who can do anything he wants because a warrior like that is powerful, but he's unapproachable. Well, he's scary, he's powerful, but I don't want to get close. But what if Jesus was both? What if he was both a sympathetic friend who can tell us, I know what you're going through, I feel your pain. I understand what, you, what you're feeling right now because I have been in the belly of that whale. I have been in the belly of the earth. I have been through your challenges. The Bible says that in the book of Hebrews. It says that Christ, being made in our image, has, has been tempted in every way, yet without sin. And so we have a sympathetic God. But he can do something about it. You see, he's also a warrior. He says, I understand what you're going through, and I also have the power and strength and ability to do something about it. And that's what he does. A friend who has lived our lives, he's felt our pain, and he has the, he has the ability to conquer all of it. Do you know Jesus in that way? 
that he's both a sympathetic friend and he's a warrior, that he has lived your life and your pain and he also has had victory through it, and that he wants to steal your identity, that he wants to take your pain and your sin and all the, way, all the things that you want to live, in life, or live like in life, the joy that you want but you've been unable to get, he wants to take all of that shame, all of that guilt, and give you new life through his identity. That's the best kind of identity thief. So we cry out to him. So we see that, and we tell our heart what to feel, and we say, salvation belongs to the Lord. This is how you're going to save me. This is how you're going to pursue me. This is how you're going to understand the pain that I feel. And then we walk with him, and we say, all that I am is yours. Thank you. Let's pray together. For more audio and information, please visit holycrosstucson.com.